0: Hello and welcome to episode number 15 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Kareem Farah. I'm the CEO and co-founder of the Modern Classrooms Project. I'm here with
1: Zach Diamond, co-host. Hey, Kareem. How are you doing?
0: Good, good. It's good to be back with you. I'm excited about this one. This one's going to be really, really interesting. You know, today we're doing a slightly different version of our podcast. Um, It's an MCP Q&A day. So we put out requests on social media into our community for folks to ask us questions that we could answer during the podcast. So it's going to be a nice variety of different topics that will pop up um, we tried to get. We're going to try to get to as many questions as possible. Uh, we have about seven or so. I think we'll get, and if we don't get to all of them, I promise we'll try to get to your questions next time uh, we do this type of podcast. Um, so we like this structure, and just so everyone knows, and we'll say this again at the end: if people want to ask questions and have them answered on our podcast, you can go to www.modernclassrooms.org/askmcp. Or um, you can also use a hashtag. Zach, do you want to talk about the hashtag folks can use?
1: Sure. So I've set up an automation to basically when anyone tweets with the hashtag Ask MCP, it'll put it into a Google Doc for us and we will see those and um, hopefully get around to answering as many of them as we can on episodes like this one in the future, which I'm really excited for as well. I just want to say.
0: Yeah. Me too as well. So please, like as you listen to this, if you have questions that you want us to answer, you know, just go to that website URL. We'll make sure it's in the show notes or use that hashtag. And um, when we do these every now and then, we'll make sure to answer it. And if your question relates to a podcast we do in the future and a topic, we might bring it up then. Now, before we get started, I do want to share the exciting news that happened this week. We launched our Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator Credential. And just to, to kind of contextualize this for all of our listeners, you know, for some time at the Modern Classroom project, we've known that educators across the country and the world have started to implement our model at scale. Um, Free users have learned the cool strategies of blended self-based master-based learning and run with it. We've had educators come through our virtual mentorship program. We've had educators come through our fellowship program that we used to do in the DC area. And we knew all these folks were implementing and we really wanted to create an on-ramp to certify you, to credential you, to elevate you if you're implementing the model, and to also pipeline some of those folks into our mentor role. that those educators can then be paid mentors who train other educators around the country and the world as they learn this model through our virtual mentorship program. So step one is to become a Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator. Um, It's a credential where you submit a a portfolio of work, and really it's just you sharing with us that you're doing the model. So submitting example instructional videos, explaining how you use instructional videos in your classrooms, explaining how you use the different self-paced structures, reflecting on them, and really just detailing your experience through the implementation process. And there's an application on our websites at www.modernclassrooms.org slash distinguishededucator. And from there, you can submit your portfolio. We're accepting applications for the next month. The, The application's not going away. It'll work in phases. So in the first phase, if you submit by the end of December, we'll be able to review them and tell you if you become a Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator by the end of January. But you'll be able to apply, of course, after that. Um, and in addition to that, we have some cool perks that come with it. Uh, you'll obviously get a credential, a digital badge, some resume language. You're going to be featured on a very cool map on our website. You'll get lifetime subscriptions to Edpuzzle and Screencast-O-Matic. We've designed a pretty cool backpack. That's a distinguished modern classroom educator backpack. And Zach, I think you were grandfathered in. So hopefully your backpack's coming soon.
1: Yes, I saw I saw the email about the backpack. I love the backpack. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. It's
0: awesome. So definitely get that order. And like I said, it will allow us to identify potential mentors. Um, and that's a whole separate kind of figuring out if mentoring is right for you. But we will be picking from our distinguished modern classroom educators. And you know, Zach co host on here is a perfect example of someone who basically got grandfathered into all the steps. He's a Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator. He's an expert mentor. He's also a podcast host. So you can be in a similar position as Zach if you kind of go through that same exercise. So I want to share that with the general public. I'll remind everyone at the end of the podcast how you do the application, but we're very, very excited about this. And if you're interested and you've been doing the model and think that you'll fit, um, definitely apply. And also know that if you apply and you don't necessarily hit all the elements of our rubric, you can revise. It's not like a one-time thing you apply and then you can't apply ever again. We deeply believe, as everyone should know at this point, in uh, the revision process and the reassessment process. So we would never not practice what we preach. That is so modern classrooms. Right? Of course. That was a discussion we had in one of our team meetings. It was like one of the priorities was how do we make sure there's a revision process? So that that is the case. Um, And you can use that feedback to help kind of improve and guide your work. So Enough about that, although I'm incredibly excited about it. But let's dig into today's episode, Zach. Um, I'm extremely excited about this. Um, So basically how this is going to work is I'll read the question, um, and I'll say the person who shared this in the class or content area they teach, and then we'll just have a discussion about it with sort of our ideas and answers. We'll keep moving through that flow and get to as many as we can in about 30, 40 minutes. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and get started. So question number one is from Gilbert. He's an economics teacher. Um, And he said, I've had personal success with self-pacing, but have colleagues who took my system and didn't do as well. The ability to manage chaos doesn't come naturally to many. How do you train your fellow teachers to be more comfortable with that? Um, First of all, Gilbert, I'm incredibly glad to read a question about How to effectively share this with others, because I think that speaks to any educator's desire to not just sort of teach in a silo, but to share the cool things that they're doing and the effective things that they're doing outside their classroom. Um, Zach, I'm kind of curious to hear your initial thoughts about this, and then I'm happy to chime in. What are your initial thoughts about Gilbert's question?
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting, too. And I I was when I started teaching in the modern classrooms model, I was so excited to tell all of my colleagues about it. But the thing that stuck out to me about this question is that he has colleagues that took his system and didn't do as well. And I'm wondering if there needs to be more adaptation of the model to every individual teacher's classroom. Um, And I, I know that's kind of a sticking point with the wording of the particular question. But really, what makes this model work for me is the unique way that I put it into practice, Um, And it's very different from the way that you put it into practice and from every other minor classroom teacher. In fact, mine is a little bit weird, actually. But um, I I just think that, like, it needs to be a personal implementation of the model. And so, and I think about this as a mentor as well. Like, I have ideas about what works for me, but I'm I'm always open to hearing what the teachers say, what they need in their classroom. And and I let them respond to me and say things like, well, I'm not sure if this would work for me. And then I try and help them problem solve. Like, oh, but you know, you don't have to do it exactly this way, because the point isn't exactly the implementation, but rather like the fundamentals, right? The self pacing, the blended learning, the mastery based assessment. And so if you can help them problem solve, and adapt that those fundamentals of the model to their, their own classroom, their needs, their practice, I think that that might be a better approach.
0: Zach, I love the way you describe that, you know, First of all, we deeply believe in customization for a reason. It's because teachers know their students best. They know their unique communities best. um, They know what works best for them and their students. Uh, So I 100% agree that one thing to consider as you think about sort of sharing this with others is to what degree do these fellow educators feel like they need to emulate what what you're doing perfectly? Or do they feel like they can make it their own? So I think that's one phase. But I think ultimately... You know, Gilbert asks a fundamental question around sort of how do you take educators who seem to be bought into traditional approaches that are more orderly and compliant, and how do you help them get comfortable with more chaos and less control?
1: Right, the managed, the managed chaos piece. Yeah.
0: Right. And I actually had a tweet about this this week where I, I mentioned this idea that it's one of the... Most important and most challenging things about teaching and learning is the idea of releasing control. So it's not a surprise um, that educators are wary of this and fearful of this idea of releasing control um, because ultimately it comes with some risk, right? when you create a classroom where students are in the driver's seat, yeah, some students will not use their time effectively. Um, Some students might struggle with it and that's okay. I think the best way to help move teachers thinking about this is to first kind of ask them, what does it mean to learn a skill? Like how do you actually learn a skill? Um, And how do you know your kids are learning? Because I think a lot of times teachers will, and this kind of came up in our previous podcast, teachers will think that They're teaching effectively based on their behaviors and what they're doing, because it's kind of ingrained in us. Like, what does teaching look like? Well, it looks like the teacher at the front of the room leading a lecture or a captivating discussion. But instead, the question needs to be flipped and say, what does it look like when students are learning? Because you can run a beautiful discussion and lecture TED Talk style, but that means kids might just be sitting there taking notes and listening. And is that really learning? So that would be the first thing I'd say. The other thing I'd say is encourage people to just take the leap because a lot of times the reason why people are afraid of controlled chaos environments or sort of self-pacing is they legitimately don't believe their students can handle it. And I've heard this from a number of folks. I've heard it from admin. I've heard it from school leadership and I've heard it from teachers and at times parents. Like kids are not developmentally ready to do this. And ultimately, I think that you realize as an educator once you try it, that they are. Yes. And that kids and students move to your expectations, right? Like they they will adjust. If you create an orderly classroom where every kid sits in the same spot every time and does the same exact structure, they will do that because you've created it for them. But if you create a new environment, and Zach, you saw this where that wasn't the case, right? Like they will also adapt to that environment. It takes time and it takes some new conditioning, but they'll adjust. So encouraging educators to take that leap. And I think you probably saw that in your own classroom, right, Zach?
1: Yeah, yeah, I it did. It, Frankly, it didn't take that much time. I mean, they did. it did take a little time, like a month or so. And as you were talking, I didn't write this down in my notes about this question, but actually, the the there's a difference between relinquishing control and having a chaotic classroom. I wouldn't describe my classroom as a chaotic one. I would describe it as a laid back one where the kids aren't like, they don't feel wrapped up by control coming from me. Um, but I do have a much better sense of where they are all at. Right. Um, so actually, I wouldn't use chaos, to dis- the word chaos, to describe my class. And yeah, this is a topic that we keep coming back to, the idea of giving up control and the role of the teacher not necessarily being one of control. Um, and I, I love, I saw that tweet from Jen and you were going back and forth with her. Um, actually, it was her pull quote um, from our last podcast where she was talking about measuring learning rather than measuring teaching. The, the whole thing keeps coming back to the same idea. But but yeah, it's not about control, but it's also not about chaos.
0: Well, and the other, like a simple strategy, which it, you know, it depends on what state of the world we're in. Um, but if you are teaching in person and when you do start teaching in person, you know, the most profound way that I was able to get the model to start being shared by their peers and have other educators implement it was actually to watch my classroom. Like you have to bring people in and say, just check it out. Uh, Look at it in action. Because if you imagine this amount of chaos, and then you go into an actual modern classroom with an educator who's doing it effectively, you realize that it's not that chaotic at all. In fact, it's highly engaged. And there's so many systems and structures in place, whether it's the pacing trackers, the lesson bins, the way that the room is organized, where you're no longer worried about that. And if I remember correctly, Zach, you came to visit my classroom, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, wasn't chaotic at all. Right, exactly. And it's, it can sound chaotic, but once you see it in action, it doesn't. It's one of the reasons that Edutopia video is so powerful, because when you see it in action, it's a lot more orderly and organized than you think. But that order and organization is actually driven by the students. Wanting to hit the learning targets, wanting to feel successful. So, um, Gilbert, uh, if you're out there, I hope this was a a useful way to give you some ideas. I mean, ultimately, there's no easy answer to your question um, because you're talking about shifting teacher mindsets. And there's not, you know, one simple way to do that. But hopefully it gave you some good ideas. Yeah. Uh, Awesome. Let's move on to the next question. It says for students who have IEPs and 504s. In um, aspects of their educational plan that need to be different from those on the general education track, what would you recommend for the must do, should do, and aspire to do lessons? If it is a clear that a certain student will need more than just an accommodation, but a modification, um, even if the must do's are most likely need heavy support or modification as well, um, and this is a ed tech coach who's at the K through six level? And I think it's a fantastic question. Um, I can start a little bit because I know I've chatted with a number of folks about this. And then Zach, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, because I know you support some students um, with IEPs and 504s. I do. Um, so, I mean, the first thing I'd say is there is no difference from a sort of accommodation modification perspective, generally speaking, when you're a modern classroom educator and a traditional teacher. In other words, like everything you did to make those accommodations and modifications, you can do in a modern classroom, is the first thing I'd say. So, all those structures exist. In fact, you're even more empowered to do so because now you have increased one on one time and small group time where a lot of those accommodations and modifications actually live and they're easier to execute. So, the first thing I'd say is anything you used to do to, you know, create the systems and structures for students with IEPs and 504s to feel successful, you can still do. Um, The other thing I'd say, and it kind of goes back to that customization idea is you use those must do's and should do's and aspire to do's in any way, shape or form that makes sense for your students. So I had students where we had to deliver those mastery checks or those must-do lessons in some sort of auditory way or some sort of guided method because they needed that type of support. And just because the other students in the classroom or some of the other students in the classroom didn't do the lesson the same way didn't mean that student didn't get full credit and didn't master that skill. So ultimately – As the expert in the room, you should assess what type of student support a student needs in that particular environment and just make the adjustment. And don't be worried about this sort of arbitrary feeling that, oh, but that's not how I laid out the must-do, should-do, the aspire-to-do. And that doesn't look the same as the other students' work. That's not what it's about. Ultimately, this model is designed to empower you to personalize as much as possible. And personalization is not just saying... Some kids are doing the must do's, some kids are doing the should do's, and some kids are doing the aspire to do's. It's taking it to the next level and saying, even with those layers, I'm also going to assess this particular student, his particular needs. I might read his particular or her particular, or their particular IEP in 504 and assess exactly what it is that they need more support on. And it could be a modification of a must do. Um, And plenty of folks do that. I certainly did that throughout my class. Um, And Zach, I'm curious to hear about kind of your perspective on this as well.
1: So it's interesting to me that this question doesn't mention the word differentiation, which is kind of the buzzword here. But the modern classrooms model, what it really taught me is that the very best differentiation is through pacing. And so the should do and aspire to do activities. In my case, the should-dos are activities connected to the must-dos and the aspire-to-do lessons are entirely separate lessons. And that's the modification and the accommodation. The must-do, the way I interpret it is that it, a student who has an IEP or a 504 in order to be able to access the general curriculum, right? That's the point of the IEP or the 504. And the general curriculum must-dos, they, they must do them, right? Um, and so I work really hard to simplify and Chunk out my must-do activities into the basically the smallest possible pieces for everyone. Yeah, I, I think that a rising tide raises all all boats, right? And a lot of kids benefit from having simpler must-dos, uh, whether or not they have an IEP or a five hundred four. And my you know my differentiation in the sense of the buzzword differentiation and modifications come in the sense that the should-dos and aspire to-dos aren't modified, if that makes sense. Everyone does the must-dos, and then. You know, A lot of kids have in their IEP that they get check-ins or things like that, and I'll do that. Obviously, I'm following the whatever stipulated in the IEP, but the must-dos are simplified and modified to the point where they generally meet the requirements of an IEP or a 504. And then the differentiation happens in the pacing, right? You can see the kids who are pulling ahead or falling behind um, and who are staying on pace, and that's where real differentiation happens actually stands out to me in the data, right? I can see it. I can see whose pace is different and how. Um, And so that's where I will intervene if I need to. But I don't modify the must-do assignments because I try and plan them such that they meet the requirements of the IEPs and 504s in the first place.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting because what this speaks to, again, is this overarching idea of customization because that's how you do it. I didn't do it that way, but it makes perfect sense to me. The way I designed it was I built the lessons, the must-dos being the most important skills that kids need to learn, but it's sort of the standard design. Um, Same thing with the should-dos and same thing with the aspire-to-dos. And then, in the classrooms where I had a co-teacher and or I could seek out the support of the special education teacher, I would consult them and say, like, you know, based on the students that I have that have IEPs and 504s, what modifications and accommodations do I need to create for these particular lessons, regardless of their classification? Ultimately, you as the educator deciding how you use those classifications. Zach does it in a way where he embeds those accommodations and modifications in the must I did them in a way where I didn't think about those accommodations and modifications when I created the lessons and the classifications and then layered them on top afterwards. And in some cases would find out, hey, I need to create a more intense modification or accommodation, and I never hesitated to do so. Make sure that you feel comfortable as an educator constantly modifying your plan and tinkering. One of the things I often coach educators on is this idea that the model is living and breathing in your classroom and changing. So don't be afraid to adjust to the moment. That's actually the beauty of it. The beauty of it is the capacity to make pivots at any time and not feel stuck because it's Wednesday and we're doing lesson three and they have to finish the skill today. So really empowering yourself to make those adjustments when you see fit and then seeking out the experts as well.
1: Totally, totally. And I wouldn't want to imply that I don't make adjustments if I need to, based either on an IEP or on just something I'm seeing in the classroom, right? I'm definitely flexible. I'm not saying the must-dos are already modified, and that's that. Right? That's, not, that's not where I'm coming from. And of course, I'll also modify a should-do or an aspire-to-do, right? It's not like those are off-limits to kids that have IEPs and 504s.
0: No, that's exactly right. And by no means did I even think about it that way, too, when you had described it. It was more a question of where, at what stage in the planning process do you layer in with accommodations and modifications, and then to what degree do you then kind of use your own best judgment and create flexibility? Both of us, I think, describe learning environments where we ultimately use our best judgment and create a flexibility. I ended up making those accommodations and modifications after planning the class and classifications you did on the front end. It also kind of depends on your student population, right? Like if you're a special education teacher, this may look different. If you're teaching a resource classroom, this this may look different, a fully self-contained. You know, all the different environments would kind of create this differently. But ultimately, you should leave uh, the answer to this question feeling like customization is your number one tool when you implement this model. So love it. Awesome. This is enjoyable, Zach. I really like answering these questions. Yeah, this is fun. Um, And this is the first time I've ever answered them with someone else because oftentimes I'm answering them in a presentation or with a school or district partnership. So being able to do it with another person is quite enjoyable. Awesome. Next question says, my students are out on distance learning and they're struggling to participate. We still have our unit test dates set at the hard deadline for turning in their work. But with so many not participating or staying on pace, is it fair to stick to the deadline? Do we wait for more to catch up or just give the test and uphold my expectations despite the majority of many of them not being ready? This is Tamiko, a math teacher. I think it's a fantastic question. I really want to hear your thoughts, Zach, and then I have plenty that I am thinking about as well.
1: Okay, yeah, I um this is a tough one because my my answer is that yes, you should stick to your deadline. Um but let me let me delve a little bit deeper into that. I think that you know, if there's anything good to come out of this the whole pandemic, I think that we are learning to give grace to each other and to our students and to our colleagues and just everyone. Um and so, you know, the idea that we wouldn't extend the deadline might feel like we're not giving them the grace that they deserve. I think that obviously we talked about customizability and adaptability just a minute ago. And so in extenuating circumstances, you know, you can give a kid an extension if something is really going on. Um, but I I have lots of reasons for, for the opinion that you should uh, stick to your deadline. First of all, I think that teachers always hear this. It's important to be consistent. Kids need consistency, particularly now. Um, but I just, I just feel like we don't want to be sending the message that like, just because the world is kind of strange, that we get an excuse to not finish our work. You know, if I didn't plan my lessons and I didn't grade my uh, my assignments and I just showed up to class and I was like, I don't know, we're going to do whatever, right? Um, first of all, the kids would be upset with me because they feel like I'm responsible to them. And then I would also be, of course, in trouble with my principal. Like, I have responsibilities and and so do they. And I think that it's important to show them that we all have to live up to our responsibilities. But I also, <laughs> I know from experience that changing the deadline is is not the greatest thing for the class. I did it um, in my first unit this year. My kids were all much further behind than I expected, which I guess I should have foreseen because there's a pandemic. We're all learning from home. Um, It's different from last year. And I did. I extended the deadline. I actually extended it twice because I accidentally extended it into a holiday. It was weird. But um, we wound up like it just felt like it was dragging on. And what happened was the kids who finished, finished and then had nothing to do and the kids who were really far behind didn't catch up any they were behind for other reasons right and i could i could see that they were behind so i was already trying to intervene i was emailing their parents i was reaching out to their advisors case managers but all of that work that i was doing it wasn't making a difference and it wasn't going to make a difference in the extra week that i gave them either so you know giving them more time doesn't address those kind of more insidious issues that are preventing them from doing the work in the first place. So it's like a solution to the wrong problem, if that makes sense. And that's why I don't think that changing the deadline is worth it, because really what the kids need is to learn that we're consistent and we, you know,
0: we live up to our responsibilities. Mm, that's fascinating. I have a couple thoughts. Um, and okay. Some are like, I don't, I don't really think there's an agree or disagree here, but there's some are in line with what you said, and then some are different. So, First things first, I definitely think if you choose to extend the deadline, do so with enough information to prove that that's the right decision. So as Zach said, you know, I think it's critical to understand that when you do extend the deadline, you are telling your students that those deadlines are softer than they once were. And ultimately, if they start to feel like those expectations are softer than they were before, they're more likely to then potentially not live up to those expectations because they're no longer as consistent. However, there's a couple of things I would do with regards to this in my own classroom. Pre-distance learning, by the way. I don't think this just applies to distance learning. I think it's more pronounced in distance learning. First thing I would always do is find a selection of students in like almost a traditional statistical analysis. Pick a select group of students and have a conversation with them. It might be scheduling a quick conversation with them, chatting them, doing it over email, and just ask them about their experience up to this point with the unit and why they are on pace or behind or ahead. And really kind of dig in because what I always found was that was the most important exercise in understanding whether my pace was not correct or they were not actually investing enough time and energy into the work that they should have been. It was such a huge element. So sometimes... Every single student or close to it would be behind in a unit, and I would have conversations, and the kids would tell me, no, I haven't put in enough time and effort, and that would be a consistent theme. And I'd say, folks, I'm holding you to this expectation. Whether you like it or not, I know you all can be better. Other times I've had conversations, and the kids would say, Mr. Fair, like, I am really overwhelmed. I've been trying my best, but, like, I did don't have enough time to stay on pace like I'm or there's extenuating circumstances at the moment that are making this difficult or every other teacher right now is pounding us with work and we don't have enough time and at those stages I would tell the kids hey you know after chatting with a number of you I've come to the decision that I'm gonna extend the deadline a week or something like that so ultimately rely on your students and trust that they're honest to actually tell you whether or not they feel like the circumstances are fair or equitable or not. So that would be my first piece of advice. But I think it's important to show them both ends of that spectrum, right? If every single time you ask them, you move the deadline, then ultimately the deadlines have no meaning. My students understood that sometimes I do that exercise and stick to the deadline and they would realize, like this is an authentic actual exercise that I'm engaging in to understand where kids are at. The second piece of advice I have is... Remember that learning doesn't stop. So if you choose to give the test when the kids aren't ready, the bigger question is what are you going to do next? Because you can still give the test and the kids may not do so well. And then it becomes a what's your next step? Are you going to tell every student that they can still have their grades? be successful, but they're going to have to take a retest or they're going to have to still master those skills and so on and so forth? Are you going to create sort of an on-ramp for test corrections, reassessment, reflection, still learning those lessons? Or are you going to close that book? And my general piece of advice would be don't close the book because you want to send the message to kids that learning never stops. And even if you didn't do so well in that unit, you can still go back to it and you can still master those skills and you can still show me that you understand that work and I will still give you credit. In which case, you as an educator don't feel like when you make the decision to stick with the deadline, that it's just going to destroy your kid's performance. In fact, they are still going to have the opportunity to succeed. It just may look a little bit different than sort of what you're used to. So those would be my two big pieces of advice.
1: Yeah, yeah. Those are great points. I, I mean, I agree with everything you said. We don't disagree. I think what I was overlooking is the possibility that the teacher's pacing or my pacing was off, right? And the best people to tell you if that's the case is the kids. Yeah. Um and so you're absolutely right. I had I have had those and that was why I extended the deadline the first time because all the kids it was the end of the first quarter, you know, it was the first quarter of distance learning and kids were like, This is too much. And they were all I wasn't looking at the data and saying they were behind or seeing they were behind. Well, I was. I I saw they were behind, but I also was hearing from them like, we're trying, you know. Right. Um I didn't do what you said, which would have been a good idea, which was to actually specifically have that conversation one-on-one with some specific kids i think that something that's difficult about that in distance learning is that the kids who are falling way 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 behind they just don't respond to you it's it's a it's a weird struggle in distance learning whereas in the classroom you could go and sit next to them right that's you know those are i guess extreme circumstances but if you can see in the data and we do have lots of data on where the kids are because of the pacing tracker and because we're keeping track of their mastery of each individual lesson uh, if you can see that the whole entire trend of the class is to fall behind, it's either extenuating circumstances from other classes or it's your pacing, but it's probably not the kids being lazy.
0: Yeah. Well, and I mean, the last thing I'll say on this is generally because the, part of the question does kind of address this idea of distance learning and being remote. I have not talked to a single school environment, district leader, teacher, who actually is able to hit all the skills that they would hit in the in-person environment. And it's of course going to be the case. I mean, ultimately the only way that'd be possible is if remote and hybrid learning was just as effective as normal in-person learning, which is not the case and no one can convince me of that. Right. So I would also just as educators remember that I feel like that's a hard thing to digest because there's still a lot of sort of leaders and just like voices pushing out that we still need to hold kids to the same expectations and all that good stuff. But I think that's what a lot of people have to say. Ultimately, your kids will decide for you how many skills they can master in a span of time. You can't actually hurry them. And some of the best, you know, measures of that is taking some of the students that would normally perform the highest on a particular unit and just ask them, right? I mean, if they're really struggling and falling behind, then there's the circumstances are just not possible at the moment. So take it easy on yourself and your kids in that way, too, and particularly yourself as an educator. You know, I have a lot of opinions on sort of pacing guides. um, But I think ultimately, they can create a ton of sort of gray, cloudy pressure and fear for educators. And during COVID and during remote and during hybrid, try to not be so married and attached to that pacing guide, because it drives you to be so petrified that you're not doing what you're supposed to do. And just remember that educators across the country and the world, for that matter, um, private schools, public schools, charter schools, and everything in between are not able to cover all the same amount of skills. It's just not the case. So take it easy on yourself as an educator too, and don't put that much pressure on yourself.
1: Yeah. I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. I know I came down pretty hard on the side of sticking to the deadline and I generally will stand by that in my own classroom. But again, this all comes back to the, the, the most important thing, which is being flexible and adapting, um, and listening to your kids
0: also. Love it. I love it. Um, awesome. A quick question here from an anonymous person asked, I started doing the model in hybrid and remote setting. Um, Does it get harder or easier when things go back to normal? I think this answer is pretty quick, Zach. This model is 100% an in-person model. So I can tell you, whoever is posing that question or anyone wondering this, the model is only going to get better when you're in person the benefits of the model come to life in person. Small group and individualized instruction, sudden pivots, making those customized moments and making those modifications to a way that the, the kind of learning design is structured is so much harder to do in the remote and hybrid space. So the simple answer is yes, it will get much easier when you go in person. It's still challenging. It's still fun. It's still incredibly stimulating to try to pull this model off effectively. Much, much easier when you're not in the remote and hybrid space.
1: 100%. Um, and I, I like the the qualifier you gave at the end there i mean teaching is not easy ever but it's not going to get harder i mean i had the opposite experience right where i was teaching in person and then i moved into remote and i can tell you that moving into remote made my life harder i mean <laughs> as a modern classrooms educator right um, so if we were to go back it would it would definitely get easier again i mean i could see the kids i was just talking about them right i could sit with the kids who are struggling i mean there's there's no question this is this is an, it's called modern classrooms Right. You know, it's
0: not called modern class Chromebooks. There's a hundred. That's a hundred percent the case. And one of the things that we've been working on the modern classroom is just reinforcing to people. We now have 35 school and district partnerships. And every single time I communicate with a school or district leader a principal or a superintendent who wants to sign a partnership, the first thing I say is do not partner with us. Do do not pay our organization or nonprofit a dime if your goal is to find a solution to COVID-19. We're not a solution to COVID-19. We're not a remote model. We're here to change the landscape of classroom instruction for educators who want to do a classroom redesign. And it takes time. It takes work. And it's ultimately it's best in person. And that's what you're investing in. So absolutely. Um, Awesome. Next question I have. PBL is usually a collaborative assignment with students constantly working together. How do you see PBL in a modern classroom with students in different places the majority of the time? Zach, fire away first. I'm going to add my thoughts. And this is Tavia from North Carolina, and she's a science teacher.
1: Yeah. Um, so I also do PBL, project-based learning. And I, my challenge with project-based learning in a modern classroom was the the different paces that kids work at. So if you're talking about collaboration in PBL, the, you know, the, the struggle is like, how do kids collaborate when they're on different lessons? And this is something I mean, that's been coming up quite a bit. Um, I don't think that PBL necessarily has to be group work. I read a couple summers ago the gold standard um, project-based learning book, and I really took a lot from it. I really enjoyed that book. I'll put it in the show notes. One of the big pieces is the public presentation of the project when it's done. And so what I do is to have kids work alone, or if they want to, they can work in groups. And there's lots of tech tools and things they can use, like they can chat, they can use Zoom, they can use Hangouts, but the public presentation comes at the end of the unit. And also I do one in the midway point where we present a draft and then kids share each other's, or they share their projects with each other. And that becomes collaboration, not in the sense of group work on the project, but just collaboration in the sense of sharing ideas, right? So we make songs, it's a music class. So what I do is I download their songs, whether they're working individually or in a group, and I put them in a You know, a Google Drive folder that's shared with the class, and then they all just go to town and listen. I have it's one of my lessons actually. It's in the the sequence of lessons on the pacing tracker, and they give feedback and they email their feedback to the the artist that made the song. That for me is how I think of collaborations. It doesn't have to be group work, and I think that modern classrooms. We've talked about this before on other episodes. um, You know, my idea of what collaboration means. I used to, it used to be much more limited to the idea of working in a group on one project together. Now, I think of collaboration as like kids reaching across the limits of what their group is. They can talk talk to anyone else who's on the same lesson as them. They can talk to someone who's on a different lesson. They can share their work with each other whether or not they're working together. Um collaboration is just it's my sense of what collaboration is has gotten a lot broader, and so I I'm not too concerned that I don't have kids working in groups together. That's my take, is that there's other ways to collaborate besides group work. And we've talked a lot about that.
0: Yeah, so I agree. I mean, I think PBL and collaboration are not necessarily the same exact thing, although there is a lot of crossover. So the first thing I would say is like a student creating a project or doing a project-based learning unit does not necessarily mean that they do that project with someone else. But I agree with Tavia and what you've said here in that like usually an effective project-based learning unit has collaboration involved. The key is kind of breaking down the understanding that collaboration can only happen when you're on the exact same thing. Like ultimately, I can collaborate with a peer in a lot of different ways. And I think real authentic collaboration oftentimes in the workspace has to do with people who actually are good at different skill sets coming together. So I think it's about skillfully designing the experiences so that the collaboration is not actually reliant on you having mastered the same exact skills, but instead uh, relying on your ability to equally participate in something. You know, even take the example of contributing to a lab, like doing a lab. You know, ultimately, if you're collaboratively executing the part where you're measuring something that's happening, you don't have to have mastered the exact same skills to do that exercise. You can still participate in the lab together and then break off at that point and then do your own elements of your project that you're going to submit at the end. Um, and then there can be checkpoints within the project that require you to ask students other questions or talk to other students. I remember I did a project-based learning unit one year about surveys, and the you know I was teaching prop stats, and the kid had to create the kids had to create surveys. They had to actually go collect data on those topics, and then they had to create visuals as well as analysis on the survey data that they collected and use the right visuals. So a lot of the the project was actually them collaborating with each other and everyone asking each other questions and sort of getting their feedback on different elements of their surveys and was it designed well. And they had to go, you know, run the questions by other students in the room and so on and so forth. And they had to run a focus group, so many collaborative elements, but ultimately each kid still produced their own survey analysis at the end and it happened at different stages. So really thinking about collaboration in a way where it's not like we all are together doing lesson four. That isn't necessarily what collaboration is, nor is that what's required of everything in PBL. And then ultimately, if there are parts of a unit or a project where everyone does need to be at the same spot, then you reinforce that and schedule that. Everyone needs to be at this point in the lesson at this time. Um, And, you know, you create some buffer. A lot of times I tell folks to say, if everyone is participating in a collaborative activity after lesson four, I would encourage educators to say, well, lessons one, two, and three are must-dos, maybe make four and aspire to do, that way, really, what kids need to do is actually master one through three to be able to participate in that activity, and there's a bit of a buffer day to help kids catch up. And for the few kids who don't make it, I think those are extenuating circumstances that require maybe wraparound supports or a different discussion. But yeah, it would really break down the barrier of sort of thinking about What is collaboration versus PBL and where do kids actually have to collaborate? Um, Because I think sometimes the term collaboration is overused, sort of used loosely, and it puts a lot of pressure on teachers to create collaboration when it doesn't fit or not use it when it works perfectly. Awesome. Um, I think we have time for about one more. Um, So let's take a look. I like this question and maybe we'll have two depending on how long this answer is. But I'm concerned about having the only modern classroom in my school. Will it still be beneficial to students or will it be more confusing than helpful? I'm happy to answer this one. And this is a sixth grade math teacher. Their name is Sarah. And the answer is it's certainly going to be beneficial. Um, I actually had this question once when I was initially sharing this model in the DC area with teachers, and we took a fellowship approach, we take an opt-in approach only when we partner with schools and districts. So when schools and districts come to us and say, hey, um, we'd like to partner with you, we say we're only going to train the teachers that want to be trained. They have to opt into the model. And sometimes that's 10% of teachers, 50% of teachers, 25% of teachers. And in many cases, one-off teachers are implementing this in their school buildings across the country. The first thing I'll say is it's certainly not a problem for students. In fact, I think it's kind of cool and beneficial. You know, the real world throws a lot of different learning environments and circumstances. And I think each one teaches you different types of things. So I think it's great when a kid gets the opportunity to learn in a new environment and strengthen skills that they've never strengthened before, like self-regulation and goal setting and being, you know, the drivers of their own learning. Um, So I think there's almost, I can't even think of a real harm that happens when you're the only implementer in a school building or in a grade level team. I think the one thing to remind yourself and just reinforce is that There really shouldn't be a reason why you can't sort of emulate the expectations of your grade level team in school. So if you have to give summative assessments at the same time as your colleagues, great. Just make sure you set up the pacing that way or you have to do certain types of assessments or projects or kind of things that would normally live in a classroom. Unless the the expectation across your school is you have to lecture at the front of the room live, that's a different story. Um, but when it comes to impacts on the kids, I think it's actually quite valuable for kids to go from multiple different types of learning environments. I don't think it hurts at all. Zach, do you have any additional thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I do have some other thoughts because I, um, Well, first of all, I don't think it's more confusing than helpful because I think that a modern classroom well implemented is less confusing um, for kids. But so I'm not the only modern classroom at my school, but last year I was the only modern classroom in some grade levels. So I teach all three middle school grade levels, six, seven, and eight. And last year, our sixth graders had like three or four different modern classrooms. And then the seventh and eighth graders that I taught had me, only me. And so I saw a difference. I wouldn't say that my 7th and 8th graders were totally lost in my classroom. They weren't. They actually performed better. The difference was that the 6th graders were using the the modern classroom's language. Like they were saying, you know, have I mastered lesson 5? Like, where's what's? show me the pacing tracker. You know, they would use the words, and they understood the model better. But the 7th and 8th graders didn't struggle in my classroom because they weren't getting the structure from other classes as well. Um, you know, kids go from classroom to classroom, not so much in elementary school, but in middle and high school, they go from class to class, and... They're very different. I think that kids are used to experiencing very different classrooms all day, and they're adaptable. And I, again, I'll, you know, I said this before, I think that modern classrooms are actually less confusing to the kids because we're laying out a very specific sequence of things to do. And then we're telling the kids where they're at in that sequence, and they either move on or they don't. And the routines of a modern classroom are, are actually very clear.
0: Yeah, no, I really like that. And the other thing I'll say about this, and I think it's really, really important, to remember that there's a lot of external pressures in education to do things a certain way because that's what everyone else is doing. Follow the pacing guide because that's what's been laid out. Teach a certain way because that's what we're used to and that's what we've been told or that's how we learned it in our education. And all those kinds of structures make you feel like you have to do things that don't necessarily have to do with what's best for kids, but what have to do with sort of the status quo. So in addition to the fact that I actually don't think there's any negative impact on students, um, and it's certainly not more harm or anything like that, I would also just encourage every educator listening to decide what you do in the classroom based off of what you think is best for kids, not based off of what everyone else is doing. And this is what I think is one of the biggest limiting factors in innovation and education, generally speaking, is how frequently we just kind of go with the norms, because that's what the norms are, are not realizing that those norms are not actually productive for kids or for learning or for mastery or for building 21st century skills. You know, I got a similar question to this one at a presentation I was doing last week, where um, a teacher asked me, well, we teach at a college preparatory academy, we want our kids to go to college. And in college, so many classes are lecture style. So can you explain, like, if that's productive for the kids to learn in this way, and then go to college? And I had two answers to them. The first was, it's not actually true. And what's not true is, yes, most classes in a lot of universities are lecture style. But 80% of the work you do in university is not actually happening in the class. So the lecture's are these like entities and kids go to like 15 hours of class, but they're really doing most of their work at home, which is not really how most K-12 education happens. So all that self-directed learning time, that time where you're sort of navigating tasks and working with your peers and problem solving is happening outside of the class. And the class itself has almost no class work, which is very different than K-12 education, where most of the work is actually happening in the class. So my first answer is actually no, in that like most kids are spending most of their time in college doing Self-directed learning. In fact, one of my seniors uh, was interviewed in a piece about learning in a modern classroom, and she went to Temple, and she had said, you know, when she got to Temple, they told her the eighty-twenty rule: eighty percent of your work happens outside of class, and twenty percent happens in it. So those skills of self-direction and and you know self-regulation, self-awareness are critical for college because most of the work isn't happening in class. But the second thing I'd say is universities are not actually great at pedagogy, so don't reduce the quality of your pedagogy to emulate something else. That is not pedagogically sound, but it's just the way it is, right? Just because in college you might go to three lectures a week for your psychology 100 class that has 150 students and is just an hour and a half of your professor talking with a couple questions here and there to the crowd, doesn't mean that's what's good for kids, right? It just means that that's what's happening at that particular university or that particular class. And don't let that then say, well... Because that's what's happening next for my kids, I then have to make my pedagogy worse or emulate that. And I remember an AP psychology teacher that we supported because she was worried about this very issue. Every like five or 10 lessons, she would do a lecture day and she would tell the kids, you may learn this way in college. I don't actually think this is the best way to teach you, but I still want to emulate it for you every now and then so you remember this style of learning and still flex those muscles, which I thought was a really cool compromise. Right. But ultimately what she was still saying to the kids was the best way to learn is through this model, but um, I'll still emulate what you may see in the next stage of your academic career, which I thought was really interesting.
1: I'm just thinking about the sixth graders that I teach and trying to lecture at them for 45 minutes. Um, and I don't envision that going very well.
0: <laughs> I, I have always said, I feel like I'm allergic to lectures at this point. Yeah, um, Yeah. it's crazy. Well, Zach, I got to say, this was super fun. Yeah. Um, I thought this was fascinating. Um, we're going to do this more frequently because ultimately, you know, the Modern Classrooms Project, nothing's more important to us than actually responding to the community and building resources and sharing information and ideas that are meeting your all's needs as listeners, as implementers, as learners. So the more you can speak to us, The more we can respond to your needs, the better we can cater to you. So I think this is wonderful. Remember, folks, that if you want to ask a question, you can go to modernclassrooms.org backslash askmcp. Or on Twitter, you can just at the end of your tweet have the hashtag askmcp, and we'll funnel those questions as well. Sometimes we'll just drop them into some of our regular episodes, but we're also going to schedule these Q&A style episodes you know, every now and then just to be able to answer these questions. So don't hesitate to just go ahead and drop them in there. And we'll try to get to them the next time we do this exercise. And then, as I said in the beginning, we're really, really excited to have launched the Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator Credential. If you're implementing our model and you want to get the credential, the digital badge, the lifetime subscriptions, the Screencast-o-matic, and Edpuzzle, you want to potentially become a paid mentor supporting educators around the country and get a super cool backpack, definitely check it out. It's at www.modernclassrooms.org backslash distinguished-educator.
1: Yeah, and I will make sure that that is in the show notes so people can go and find it there as well.
0: Perfect. All of it will be in the show notes, the Ask MCP links as well as the Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator credential link. Zach, as usual, always awesome to record with you. Had a lot of fun this time, and we'll be back at it next week. Yep. Thanks a lot, Karim. This was really fun. Have a good one, everyone.
2: Hi, I'm Kate Gaskill, Head of Teaching and Learning here at Modern Classrooms. Teachers, winter break is around the corner. Keep the faith, you're almost there. In this week's love from our teachers, I'm so happy to introduce you to Kelly Bittner, a teacher connected with us through our virtual mentorship program on a scholarship provided by the Tracy Family Foundation. My name is Kelly Bittner. I'm a high school math teacher at Quincy Senior High in Quincy, Illinois. I learned about the Modern Classroom Project through the free course my administration recommended. From there, I was fortunate enough to earn a scholarship through the Tracy Family Foundation for the Modern Classroom Mentorship Program. This program is not like the traditional professional development a teacher usually has access to. You are assigned a mentor that you can communicate with throughout the course to offer you ideas, feedback, suggestions, and examples of your assignments. The mentors are classroom teachers as well, so they understand the process you are going through because they've been there before. I'm so excited to have a full unit complete at the end of this program. I have a set of completed videos, assignments, and mastery checks ready to go that my mentor has already looked over. She's helped me troubleshoot and organize. The program allows for so much freedom. It really can be applied to different grade levels, instructional levels, and subject areas. I'm so excited to roll out my Modern Classroom unit next semester and continue to work on the next units. Keep an eye on our social media, where we announce new scholarship opportunities for educators across the country. Teachers, we are here for you. As always, you can find us at modernclassrooms.org.